All right, so we are in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. It was just read on the screen, and it was read in the ESV, and it says bond servants. You know what other translations say? Slaves. So the first two words of this passage are slaves obey. That's good if you're a master, that sucks if you're a slave, right? Right? That's, that's terrible. This is a really interesting passage um, in Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to read it again, but I want to point out a couple things, and we're going to read it in a couple other translations as well, um, and try to get a phrase I like, ruthlessly realistic, about this passage. Um, so just before this, in chapter 5, Chapter 5 in the book of Ephesians starts with this passage that I honestly try to live by, and I think it helps us understand the totality of the Bible and what the Bible and God are really calling those who follow Jesus to do. In chapter 5, verse 1, if you, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, I think there are Bibles available if you want a hard copy. You can raise your hand. Maybe somebody will get you a Bible. Um, otherwise, just pull out a smart device and Google Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, and you can get there. If you have a Bible app, you can get there as well. That'll be, uh, I think, somewhat important for you to engage with this. Um, Ephesians 5, 1 makes this statement. It says, be imitators of God, therefore as beloved children. Other translations say, as dearly beloved children, imitate God. Now, just real short, I want to say this. That is not an easy thing to do when the Bible itself says that we can't see God and God's spirit, right? The Bible says that. But the Bible says imitate God. Anybody, just quick, I'm going to ask you, you may not get this very much, but want to participate with me of how do you think you imitate a God you can't see? Anybody, any thoughts? Somebody just shout it out. You don't need to raise your hand. Just shout it out. You look at Jesus. You remember when um, there's this moment when Jesus kind of coming to the end of his life and he has these disciples and he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then there's all this question. And there's this one moment where a man looks at Jesus and says, show us the father. Anybody remember who that was? You kids who grew up in Sunday school, anybody remember who that was? man named Philip says, show us the father. And Jesus says this, have I been with you so long that you don't know this? If you've seen me, you've seen the father, right? So this statement, look at Jesus. It's more than Jesus. If I'm going to imitate God, I got to imitate Jesus. I have to imitate Jesus. So that's what Ephesians 5, 1 says, is be imitators of God. Then there's this whole statement on love, that the ultimate way we imitate God is by imitating Jesus, and the ultimate way we imitate Jesus is to love. Now, here's just what I want to submit to you, because we don't have all day. Love is way more complex than our culture wants to give credit to love for being. Love is promoted in our culture as maybe in some levels this just very hallmark card, just love each other. Well, Paul starts getting concrete, and he says, well, let me tell you how you should love each other. He says in 
chapter 5, verses 15, look carefully as how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Here's something that gets in the way of love, foolishness. Therefore, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Use good gifts, but don't get drunk with wine. That's foolishness. It's debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit. Again, we don't have all day, but I want to say this. We don't love as Christians. It's impossible to imitate Jesus without the filling of the Holy Spirit. He says songs are a part of this. But now he gets real concrete, and he starts talking to wives and husbands, and he starts talking to children and parents, and now he talks to slaves and masters. Here's a phrase that I want you to get and hold on to. We try to use this in redemption amongst leadership quite a bit, and I've said it already. Ruthless realism. Let me just start by saying this. Christians typically are horrible at this. They're ruthlessly idealistic, or Christians are ruthlessly simplistic, but oftentimes we aren't ruthlessly realistic. Here's the reality. Women are married to men. Every kid has some type of parent, whether that parent's in existence or seen or not seen. In the vast majority of the history of the world, slavery has existed. That's a fact. It didn't necessarily always look like the American slave trade, but it always existed. So let's just be ruthlessly realistic about that and say Paul is entering a time and a place where he has to speak to real slaves who really have come to Christ. And he has to talk to real masters who really own slaves, who've really come to Christ. Okay? So that's where we start. Now here's where Jesus, in my view, just gets kind of crazy when it comes to love. Jesus himself says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? So you love those who love you? What credit is that to you? Everybody does that. Even sinners love those who love them. And you do good to those who do good to you. What credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. You lend to those from whom you expect repayment. So you're a lender who expects repayment. What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But I tell you, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great. Then you will be children of the Most High. Check that out. Then, when you love your enemies... When you give to those who you know won't repay you, when you do good to those who do evil to you, then you will be children of the Most High. What? Everybody else does that other stuff all the time, does good to those who do good to them, loves those who love them. Because he is kind. Imitate God, this is what he's saying. Because he's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Here's the hardest part about Ephesians 5 and 6. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, but my husband's not the Lord. And in fact, he might be horrifically abusive, spiritually abusive, emotionally abusive, 
maybe even physically abusive. Does this passage apply to us? Is Paul just saying live up under that? Just stay and shut your mouth and do it? Children, obey your parents, but my parents might be spiritually abusive. They might be emotionally abusive. This passage is not hard. I'm going to be honest with you. This passage is not hard for those of us who grew up in great homes, for those of us who have amazing marriages. It's challenging, but it's not hard the same way it is for a wife who's in an emotionally destructive marriage. It isn't hard for a child who loves their parents, whose parents seek their well-being. It's challenging, but it isn't inside rip my guts up hard to go obey your parents unless my dad's a total clown, an abusive fool, somebody who rejected me and went away from me. What does that mean for me? Hearing the statement, slaves obey your masters, for most of us who've lived in a dominant culture our entire lives, who don't even know what it's like to have any lineage of this, who have all of the privileges of society, we read past that and go, oh, that's interesting. Maybe it disrupts you because you've been in a class in college one time where they talked substantially about justice. But if you're sitting in this room and you're an African-American, or you're a Hispanic, and you hear that, the reality is, like so many of us, and now this includes all of us, but in that moment with that passage, there are all these times where there's passages in the Bible where we get to them and we go, I know I'm supposed to believe that, but I don't know if I do. And maybe not only believe it, I may want to outright reject it and just go, and it may be the very thing. If you're sitting in this room and you go, I don't even know if I'd call myself a Christian. I've had a friend inviting me in here or I just showed up because I have some questions. This passage may be the reason you go, that's why I'm not a Christian. Paul tells slaves to obey their masters and somebody comes along and says, yeah, but he also tells masters to treat them really, really well. And you're going, I don't care. That's ridiculous. Like, how in the world does he possibly say that? And yet Jesus rings in our ears, so you love those who love you. So you do things that may be a little bit challenging, but those who love their enemies, slaves who love their enemies. We're going to see here in a minute, a master whose slave steals from him and leaves is going to be presented with a moment to love the same way. How does a wife love her husband who treats her like that? Now, here's what I want to do. I want to deal with more of those questions today. I'm doing this a little different. Um, but the reality of this passage, as it breaks down, if you look at Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, it's essentially saying this, slaves, there's an exhortation to obey their masters as they would obey the Lord himself. That's what it says. Look at it, 6, 5. In 5, he says to do it with respect and with sincerity. He doesn't say do it with respect and sincerity if your master is respectful and trustworthy. He just says, Obey him as you'd obey the Lord with respect and sincerity. With a wholehearted desire to please God. This is where many people, this verse, Ephesians 6, 6, is where people will go, this applies to work. You work for somebody, don't work as though you're working as a people pleaser for them to see it with their eyes, but work all the time, all the time. Let me just say this to all of us who work. 
as though you're working for the Lord, not for men. There's this great illustration that's come to me this week through um, others, pastors and teachers who are teaching in redemption. And it's a story of the Statue of Liberty, that the Statue of Liberty was built before the Wright brothers ever developed the plane. There were no planes. At that point, there was no ability for anybody to see the top of the Statue of Liberty. But when helicopters began to go over it and little planes began to go over it, they looked at the intricacies of the hair and the head, and they were precise and perfect. Which means the sculptor of the Statue of Liberty was sculpting a piece of the sculpture nobody would ever see and went, in integrity, I'm going to do it with precision and perfection. I think in respect and sincerity to himself as a sculptor, but we would say we do everything before the face of God. And here's what Paul's saying, even in the hard stuff, because slavery exists, masters are real. How do I now then live up under this reality with some masters who are gracious and kind with others who are not. The statement of that would be love. But here's the basic. Obey with respect and sincerity, with a wholehearted desire to please God, with a great attitude. And then here's what he turns around. And if you're a master, do the same thing. I love that. Like treat your slaves with respect and sincerity, with a wholehearted desire to please God, with a great attitude. He's calling slaves and masters to the same reality regardless of what they have. Okay. Now, give me clarity, please. Slaves, Vince, what time did I start? What time do I have to end? That's a better question. I'm not going to go that long. Okay, perfect. Um, so give me clarity, please. Here's the first thing you need to understand. If we're going to be ruthlessly realistic... And we are going to have integrity, regardless of what you believe in this room about this passage. If you're going to have integrity, this is not the same situation as American slavery. Okay? Here's what scholars would say. Non-Christian scholars would say this type of slavery was not racial. It was all types of races. Okay? Many of these slaves were freed in their lifetime. Many of these slaves served in specialized, very high-capacity roles. They were like very effective and at times very specified employees. Many of these slaves received high specialized education, which was very different than American slavery. Many freed slaves became Roman citizens and began to develop client roles with their former masters. Sometimes it served as an advantage to them. That's the facts. Does that mean this slavery wasn't bad? People were owned, folks. That's bad. <laughs> okay, that's bad. Kenneth Bradley, in a book, Slaves in Society, says this, the bare record of the fact shows that Roman slaves like those in the Americas. I just told you the ways it wasn't like. Here's the way it was like those in Americas. They were bought and they were sold like animals. They were punished indiscriminately and violated sexually. They were compelled to labor as their masters dictated. They were allowed no legal existence. They were goaded into compliance through intimidation. They were the ultimate victims of exploitation. 
That's the fact. So if we're going to be ruthlessly realistic, it wasn't identical, but it was exploitation. What happens then? What does love look like in a society like that? Because I could say love is stand up and resist. Sometimes love is that. But what do you say to the slaves where the resistance doesn't work? What do you say to the slaves who continue to have kids? What do you say to the slaves who've actually come to Christ and are reading Jesus' words that say, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek? And they go, I believe these are God's words, but I have to live under that. Martin Luther King Jr. is famous for having a great quote that says, love is the key that unlocks the door to ultimate reality. I already said this to you contextually. This passage can't be understood outside of the context of the call to love. It's in Ephesians 5. Read it. That's the context. Be imitators of God. Love as he loved. Do as he did. It's in the context of the passage, but theologically or just perspective-wise, you cannot understand what Paul's doing here if you don't understand love. Martin Luther King Jr. said love is the key that unlocks the door to ultimate reality because he knew something explicitly and intuitively. MLK lived in a time of civil rights. He knew intrinsically, read him, listen to him. He knew intrinsically, if we just get up and fight, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, this isn't good for society. He had a vision of what was called the beloved community. How do we live together in the midst of this, yet ruthlessly realistic, while we're not in a utopia, we're in oppressive regimes? And he says, love is the key that unlocks the door to ultimate reality. He understood something intrinsically, impulsively, deep in his gut. Andy understood something explicitly. Here's what MLK understood. He was a deeply committed Christian. Here's what he understood. We're called to love because God is love. He understood love is the greatest thing in the world. Love is reality. Remember what he said? Love is the key that unlocks the door to ultimate reality. He understood it isn't just the key, it is reality. Because John, 1 John 4 says God is love. And God spoke the world into existence. And God, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, is the one who holds everything in creation. Everything we can see and everything we can't see consists, holds together in God, which means it holds together in love. Which means, MLK knew this, Reality is love, which means the heart of the universe is love, which means when Paul says to those who don't believe, it's in God we live and move and have our being, we very accurately and biblically could say it's in love that we live and move and have our being. The reason when we live in an environment of abuse, in environments of oppression, that impulsively we go, this is wrong intrinsically, even when you're the oppressor, that something in you is like, this just doesn't feel right, and you have to fight it and fight it and fight it and ultimately become less and less human 
in your promoting oppression and or abuse, which by the way, let me stop really quick and say, let me take a deep breath and say this. In this room right now, there are fathers who are oppressing their children. There are husbands who are oppressing their wives. There's wives who are manipulating and oppressing your husband. This isn't just a message for the world out there. It's a message for you and me right now. There are bosses who are unjustly treating their employees and employees their bosses. Love is reality. And the reason it feels like it doesn't fit is because you live in a world that was spoken in love and is sustained in love. And the reason deep down you go, this just isn't right, even the way you view and treat yourself is because it isn't according to reality, which Martin Luther King Jr. knew love holds the world together, which is why he then says this. In speaking of love, we're not referring to some sentimental emotion. That's what our world gets wrong. That's what Hallmark cards are. In speaking of love, we're not referring to some sentimental emotion. It'd be nonsense to urge men to love their oppressors in an affectionate sense. Is that what Jesus is saying? Affectionately love your enemies. I just can hate my head. Like every, every emotion you have is an emotion of, I want to do wrong to them. Is that what he's saying? Be affectionate towards them? King says, no. That'd be nonsense to urge men to love their oppressors in an affectionate sense. When we speak of loving those who oppose us, we speak of a love which is expressed in the Greek word agape. Agape means nothing sentimental or basically affectionate. It means understanding and redeeming goodwill for all men in overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. Now, Paul, if you watch how Paul's talking to children and their parents, husbands and their wives... It all comes from this phrase, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And he's speaking to Christians, okay? He's speaking to Christians. There are Christian slave owners and there are Christian slaves. There are Christian husbands and there's Christian wives. There's Christian parents and there's Christian children. And he's saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, what happens when the chain's broken? This is what's crazy in the Bible is there's many times where they just go, love your enemies radically. And then there's other times, and this is what I'll call for right now. Remember when I said earlier, there's no way we can follow Jesus in love without the Holy Spirit. I'll call it the creativity and artistry of the Holy Spirit. At some times, you're as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove of sitting under somebody who's unjustly using their power. And you in love... Nonviolent resistance, MLK. At other points, the wife whose husband's been verbally abusive the whole time, going, I just don't feel freed. And she continues to love them, like First Peter says, without a word. Love them without a word. Love them without a word. And in some instances, they win them by their very actions, like First Peter says. But here's the creativity of the Holy Spirit. At other times, we have to honestly look these people in the face and go, it is not loving for me to continue to sit under your oppression because you're dehumanizing yourself. Not just you're dehumanizing me. This was King's argument, which is robustly biblical. Listen to this. 
is the moment the Spirit of God makes you go, in love, I can't let these people continue to act the way they are because love is others-oriented. It isn't me-oriented. You're looking at them and going, you are dehumanizing yourself by the misuse of your power. And this is where a king leads a, a movement and many slaves, Christian slaves, led rebellions and other times they didn't. Why? Like, I want one plus one equals two. But can I get an amen? Life doesn't work like that. Is that true? Amen. Right? It's, it's the pastor at the moment when you're depressed who goes, listen, here's what the Bible says. You just got to do this. It's not that easy, right? Or somebody who simplistically, the counselor you go to, who goes, stop talking to your parents, right? They've treated you horrible. And you're like, it's not that easy. <laughs> it's not that easy whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian. Life isn't that easy. The creativity of the Holy Spirit says love will always be the lens and always be the means we evaluate everything through. And love is the most powerful and the greatest thing in the world, which it sometimes gives me the ability to bear up underneath it and love those who are unlovable, and at other times leads slaves to a rebellion in which they're saying enough is enough on your behalf and on our behalf. Which is why King then says, agape is a willingness to go to any length, to go to any length. Agape love is the ability and willingness, the power to go to any length to restore community. There are certain times agape love means I'll take the pain to restore community. That doesn't mean I'll take the pain to maintain peace. Preserving peace is not the restoration of community. If preserving peace is dehumanizing the one who's oppressing you or enslaving you, whatever words you want to say. But it is always the ability and the willingness to restore community. He says, the king then says, therefore, if I respond to hate with reciprocal hate, I do nothing but intensify the cleavages of a broken community. This is why everything he did, everything he did, read his writings, listen to his speeches, was on the basis of love. Always. Here's the way I want to end. And I, I just want to say this. If you go in the passage, okay? Here's what the passage says very clearly. Slaves, obey your masters as you would obey himself with respect and sincerity. Verse six, do it with a wholehearted desire to please God. Do it with a great attitude. Now he sits in the church, right? Remember where he is. He's speaking to Christians and he looks at the masters. He goes, masters, treat your slaves with respect and sincerity with a wholehearted desire to please God, with a great attitude. So here's where, for me, I sit there and I go, okay, I love this vision. I'd love it to be one plus one equals two, but life isn't always like that, and most of the time isn't. I have to remind myself that God sees all, God is a present in all, and God is love, which means love sees all, love is present in all. Masters are under the authority of a loving reign. Slaves are under the authority of a loving reign. Children are, wives are, husbands are, parents are. 
So I go, what would this actually look like at that time to a real master and to a real slave? What does spirit-led creativity look like to a real master and a real slave? There's a book in the Bible that's barely longer than the Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln. Just over 300 words. It's this book called Philemon. The book of Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner. He had a slave named Onesimus. I want to tell you this story. This was in my own journey of looking at stuff like this, do I even believe it? Part of the reason I believe in God is he'd bring me into these abilities to see things always, almost always through other teachers. I'm not a real innovative, I'm not like the inventor guy. There's a guy, Redemption Tempe, named Jim Mullins. He's like an inventor. I'm not an inventor. Right? I'd be what's called an early ad adopter. There was this man named Ray Bakke, um, who I had a chance to study with and get a doctorate under his tutelage. And we went to, I mean, I've been to urban Seattle with him. I've been in Washington, D.C., and I was in China with him, and I was in Beijing, and I was in Xi'an, and I was in Shanghai. China's crazy, by the way. Um, all with this guy. And he told me this story about Philemon and Onesimus. And I want to just recount the truth of this story, both biblically and historically, to you. So Philemon is the slave owner, Onesimus is the slave. And here's the, in simple form, the, the reality of this story, put briefly, is this. The book of Philemon, its biblical accuracy and its historical reality, tells the story of this slave, Onesimus. The name Onesimus means profitable or useful. That's what his name means means. So for all you parents out there, give your kids meaningful names, right? At one point, my wife and I were looking at the names of our kids, and she's like, she could not stand the stuff I'd come up with, because I was like, what do you think about, like, Ocean? She's like, you're a clown. <laughs> like, we're not naming our kid Ocean. Um, so now, we named our kids things, and I try to go back. So my son Braden's in the back, and I said, you know, Braden's name um, has this strong sense of strength to it, this reality of strength and bravery to it. So I talked to him. I have a son named Yale, like the university, and it's a variant of the Hebrew word Yal, which means God's strength. He took on his grandfather's name as his middle name, James, and I said, the book of James is all about God's strength in action. So we'll talk about that. Harmony, my daughter Harmony, we'll talk to her. Above these things, put on love, the passage in Colossians, which binds everything together in perfect unity. My other daughter's name's Luciana. Light of grace is what the name means. And so I encourage her to walk around as a light of grace, right? Well, Onesimus' name means useful or profitable. But Onesimus stole money from his slave owner, Philemon, and then ran away and went to get caught up in the sea of people of Rome. He's an urban prodigal. So five acts to tell you this story, right? Here's the first one. In about AD 53, here's the place. This is why this is relevant. A slave owner and a slave in Ephesus. It's where it all starts. So in Ephesus in about AD 53, if you want to record this, it's in Acts 19. 
Paul gets evicted from the Jewish synagogue. The Jews like him no longer. So he goes out and he rents a hall, the hall of Tyrannus, and he begins to do a Socratic discussion. And people show up in these theaters. It's a theater is what it is. People show up in these theaters. Philemon, who's a fairly fairly wealthy um, landowner who has slaves, can travel because of his money, likely goes to the theaters, shows up to the school of Tyrannus. In Ephesus, hears Paul Socratically discussing the gospel in Philemon, the slave owner, hears the gospel and he believes it. So he goes back to his hometown, which they would say is around Laodicea or Colossae, which is where the book of Colossians is written to, about 100 miles away from Ephesus, which takes us to the second act in his hometown. He's planted a church. So if you read the beginning of Philemon, there's three names listed. Philemon is one of them, likely his wife and likely his son. And then Paul says, and to the church who meets in your home. At this moment, they start a church in their home and they begin to incorporate people into this church. While that is happening, he has a slave named Onesimus, the one whose name means profitable and useful, who steals money from him and takes a thousand mile trek to Rome. Okay, if you're wondering about the mileage, Laodicea and Colossae is about 100 miles from Ephesus, which is where Philemon heard the gospel and came to faith. He went 100 miles back home. Onesimus steals money and takes a thousand mile track to Rome. How in the world will Philemon ever find him in Rome? What do you think? He won't. But there's this day, right, which takes us to this third act in the drama where Onesimus is roaming around in Rome. And many historians would say that he likely begins in Rome. Remember I said that um, in the ancient worlds, the only city in the ancient world to exceed a million people, there were two. Xi'an was one of those cities in China I told you I was at. The other one was Rome. So it's huge, right? How in the world is, would Philemon ever chase after his runaway slave whom he owned, had money in, and the guy stole money from him himself? Well, historians imagine that there's this moment where there's a comrade of Paul's named Tychicus, one of Paul's associate evangelists, who likely may have been preaching in this local dialect that Onesimus himself spoke. Do you remember this moment in Acts 2 when everybody speaks in different languages and people go, that's my language, that's my language. Well, at this moment, there's this man speaking in a local dialect that it's Onesimus' dialect. They say it may have drawn him in. Onesimus hears the gospel and believes it, just like his slave owner had. Onesimus hears it and he's like, this is unbelievable. Jesus is Lord. The Lord is love. And he begins to now enter and check this out to a school of discipleship with Paul who now ends up in prison in Rome with Paul, who was the one who preached the gospel to save the slave owner. How in the world would the slave owner ever get back in contact with the runaway slave? The Holy Spirit's creative, right? The Holy Spirit's on the move. The gospel 
preached is a gospel that has power. This slave enters discipleship training as a new believer under Paul and eventually joins a trusted leadership team with Paul. Don't believe me? Read Colossians 4. So they say, well, what does this mean? And he begins to now tell his story, like many of us, maybe have a big white construction seat. Map out your story. And he starts mapping it out. And then I was a slave, and then I was a thief, and I stole, and then I was a runaway. And maybe at that moment, Paul said, you know, Jesus told a story about a runaway son. But that son returned to his father. What do you think you should do? Giving authority back to... Onesimus, Onesimus may go, I think I'm supposed to go back to Philemon. Now, just in real short, what do you think his emotions are at that moment, right? These are the emotions if you follow Jesus, these moments where Jesus is like, I think you should do this. And you're like, I don't. <laughs> like, uh, like, I'm going to die if I do that. I'm not doing that, <laughs> right? I mean, his hands are clammy. He's like, they're doing prayer meetings over it, right? He's going he's gonna to kill me, Right? Why would Paul have ever penned a letter, which is what happens, to Philemon to accept Onesimus back if Onesimus wasn't going, you got to say something to him. Like, protect me. I don't want to die. Three responses slave owners had to runaway slaves. They could brand them, brand them, you're mine. They could kill them, which was the most likely of cases, or they could buy their ransom from the government and free them. Paul writes a letter. Read Philemon when you leave here today. And he basically says this to Philemon. Philemon, you're my boy. <laughs> Not like you're my boy, like you're my bro, but like you're my son in the faith. I love you. I love the way you're loving people. I love the way God's using you. I love the ministry that's coming out of your home. I have something to tell you. I'm sending with Tychicus Onesimus, right? Imagine Philemon, Onesimus, back to you. And he uses Onesimus' name, the meaning of it. He is useful to your service. And then he says, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. And here's what he basically says, because you owe me your very life. That's what Paul does. And then they, in route, head back. Now, word travels fast, right? Imagine there's a Turkish bath with all the slave owners um, hacking it up. They got plenty of money, and they're like, hey, we heard Onesimus is headed back. And they look right then at Philemon. What are you going to do? Now, imagine the peer pressure of Philemon at this moment. First off, imagine his emo emotions when he reads the letter. Onesimus is coming back to you, like, I'm certain everything within him. Now listen to this. Get into this story. Everything within him wants to rip it apart. This guy robbed me. This guy made a fool of me. I don't trust this guy. But we're reading the letter, so he didn't rip it up. We're reading the letter. He didn't rip it up. So they're on their way back. Just This is imagination. They're in this Turkish bath. People are going, Philemon, there's one thing you, sh you need to do. At the very least, you brand him. Here's what you have to do, kill him. If not, every slave that we own is gonna go, I came to faith in Jesus, right? You need to free me. There's three options, brand him, kill him, free him. You can't do this, Philemon. Now, what then happens 
in this moment. Let me, let me say this. Here's what we know. He didn't rip up the letter. And there's this moment in Philip, Philemon 15. doesn't even have multiple chapters. So 15 is the 15th verse where Paul basically says to Philemon, it's a short letter. He says, perhaps the reason that Onesimus was separated for you for a little while is that you might have him back for good. In other words, God brought Onesimus to the city of Rome so that he could hear the gospel, understand it, believe it, be discipled, placed into leadership, that God had a way bigger plan in this that actually had to do with the cosmic redemption of the whole world, the gospel. Now, here's where this story gets really amazing. There's all this pressure on Philemon. He doesn't tear it up, but he actually receives Onesimus back, likely remembering Paul's teaching that went many places, but explicitly we have it in Galatians where Paul himself says here, and he says this multiple places, there is no barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all in and all. In this place... There is no slave or free, male or female. We're all in Christ. So they receive Onesimus back, definitely at the huge opposition of other slave owners. Now, this is where you go, God? Paul dies. Church history says there's this man named Ignatius. How many of you guys have ever heard the name Ignatius? Ignatius um, is arrested by Roman soldiers. Um, Ignatius is the famous pastor of the Antioch church. They're marching him across Asia Minor to be killed, to be executed, like many Christians were. While he's en route, he's bound and changed, and he writes letters to various leaders to encourage them in the faith. So Ignatius is writing this letter, and at Smyrna, he writes to the bishop of Ephesus. Now, you guys are, this is a Protestant church, low church. Do you know what a bishop is? Like the highest ranking church official in Ephesus. You know what the bishop's name was? Onesimus. So people go, was that the same runaway slave who was a thief, Onesimus? A.T. Robertson, one of the best scholars, surveys the evidence and gives a dozen reasons why we can assume it's the exact same Onesimus. Catholic theologian Joseph Fitzmaier says the exact same thing. So now you go... How in the world did this little letter, barely bigger than the Gettysburg Address, get into the canon? In the Cambridge History of the Bible, says that the canon as we have it was in response to this heretic, this false teacher, Marcion's false canon. And they were putting the canon together. And the Cambridge History of the Bible says, you know where it was put together? Ephesus. Who would have led the charge to put the canon together in Ephesus? The bishop. Who was the bishop? Onesimus. Onesimus said, I still have this letter that I carried to Philemon. I think it should be in this canon. 
God working through it to slip this little letter into our New Testament as a personal testimony of a slave who was set free, who became an international immigrant, who heard the gospel in his native dialect, who became a leader in the ultimate early church, ultimately to become the bishop so that you and I in Flagstaff, Arizona could hear a passage like, slaves, obey your masters, and go, could God possibly have something bigger in mind? Love's the key that unlocks the door to ultimate reality. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in Christ. God, I personally thank you for... um, teachers who expose me to amazing truth like this, like Ray Bakke. God, I thank you for very normal, everyday men like Tychicus who spoke in his local dialect, here's why, because it's the only one he could speak in, and then Onesimus heard it, and Onesimus becomes a bishop. Thank you that you're a God who sets slaves free, God who calls us to love in impossible circumstances and yet who works your wonders in your ways. Many times, like Paul, we don't see it, and other times we do, but God, give us the faith to trust that you're working. In Christ's name, amen.